All I have is redemption song, sings Bob Marley. We here at Solutions of Violence, along with our guest today, former state legislator Jim Wayne, believe that for those who have been treated unfairly, redemption is possible. We just have to fight for it. Welcome, folks. We are Solutions of Violence. We are airing on WFMP 106.5 FM radio. I'm Jim Johnson. My co-host is Jamie McMillan. We are your hosts for Solutions of Violence. Following is part of WFMP's public affairs educational programming. The views expressed are those of our guests, not the station. If you'd like to share your views, you may contact us by sending us an email to solutionsofbalance18 at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Our guest today is Jim Wayne. Jim Wayne is a lifelong Democrat who represented Louisville in the state district 35 for 28 years. Jim Wayne is also a psychotherapist and a director of Institute for Advanced Psychotherapy in Louisville. He is the author of the book, The Unfinished Man, as well as numerous articles on a variety of public issues. Jim Wayne, welcome to Solutions to Violence. Well, I'm honored to be with you today. So, Jim, when you are a Democrat that represented Louisville's District 35, the Kentucky House of Representatives, you held that seat for some 28 years. Republicans began to dominate Kentucky politics in the late, oh, 2000s, early 2000s. You, Jim Wayne, was first elected to the Kentucky House of Representatives in 1990. You retired in 2019. So, for many of these years, Republicans have held the majority. Talk to us about what it was like as a Democrat representing a blue district in a state dominated by Republicans? Well, it's uh, difficult to be in a minority, and I'm sure the Republicans felt that for nearly a century in the House of Representatives in Kentucky. The Democrats actually controlled the House and the Senate during the 1990s, which was my first 10 years. And then in the year 2000, by a slight majority, they took control of the Senate. Then in 2016, with the Trump tsunami, the House of Representatives went Republican for the first time, like I said, in nearly 100 years. So the last term that I had was actually a term that was dominated by the Republicans in the House. And at that point, I realized that there was a very, very uphill battle that Democrats would have in in our Commonwealth to try to overcome the reactionary, radical right policies of the Republicans, both in the House and the Senate. Very, very difficult as a Democrat a reasonable progressive Democrat to try to influence this type of dominance by the Republican. Well, Jim, in your tenure as a Kentucky state legislator, you successfully battled throat cancer as well as battling Republicans. You've demonstrated, <laughs> you've demonstrated a strong constitution. How has this challenge influenced your political life? Well, I think the battle with Republicans has been ongoing since I was first in the legislature. But I have to say there's also been a battle with Democrats during the time that, that they controlled both chambers and when they control just the House because there is a strong conservative group of Democrats predominantly from rural areas who took control of the House and pretty much managed its agenda during all my 28 years. So it's, it was a, an internal battle with Democrats and there was also a battle with Republicans. I, I will say, I think the uh, throat cancer, larynx cancer treatment and aftermath, which if anyone knows anyone who's had any type of throat cancer, it, the treatment on that is one of the most cruel, difficult treatments there is because it's such a sensitive part of the body. But in some ways, psychologically, it was much easier to to battle cancer than it was to battle reactionary legislators who uh, uh, were self-righteous in their dominance. Well, during those 28 years, what legislation sponsored or supported by you have you been, have you most pride? Well, I think there are a number of things that, that during the years we were able to really work on and 
find some progress. One, I think, is the uh, legislation to provide stricter accountability and stricter punishment and stricter definitions for the sex abuse of minors. Until we passed the legislation in 08, the age of consent in Kentucky was 12. The uh, statute of limitation on in civil suits was one year after the act. So we were able to really push that legislation through, and we were able to define the age of uh, majority as the age of consent. And in cases where someone like a student, a senior in high school, was of majority age of 18, but they were involved in a sexual relationship with a teacher or a coach, that that would still be considered an offense against a minor. Uh, we also strengthen the accountability, people reporting these incidents, so there could be no cover-ups. We ensured that uh, the statute of limitation would be extended five years beyond the age of majority, which is still not long enough. But that bill was uh, was passed, and I think we've seen it implemented in the years since then. When you see these teachers, especially, or coaches involved with minors, they the the uh, prosecutors are coming down pretty heavy on those folks, and that's good. I think the other thing in terms of impact was the Affordable Housing Trust Fund, which was initially sponsored uh, in the Senate in in 20, I mean, in 1992, and it was basically a shell legislation. There was no money in it. The enlightened Libby Jones, who was first lady at that time, was able to scale down the Derby breakfast in 1993 and 1994, and uh, the money that she saved from that was the seed money for the Affordable Housing trust fund in Kentucky. It took us about 16 years to have a steady flow of money in that fund. And eventually it was a real estate a fee that at the time of uh, real estate transfers was uh, was put into the trust fund. It now generates more money than the crusade for children every year. It's, it averages about $6 million a year, and it is either rehabbed or, or constructed over 12,000 units in uh, helping to finance those units uh, in Kentucky during the last 20 years. So it's, it, it was also a model for the city's affordable housing trust fund, which is often running here in Louisville. So it was a, it's a significant piece of legislation. The, the other one, I, I think, is the money we were able to force the state to pay to relocate 10,000 families uh, from the uh, airport areas where the uh, power elite in, in Louisville behind closed doors, including the Bingham family who were complicit in the cover-up, designed an expansion of the Louisville airport to accommodate the corporation called United Parcel Service. And uh, without letting people know that this would impact the area around the airport, and the neighbors that were trying to live peaceful lives there. When it was evident that uh, those folks had been neglected and not really been taken care of in the plan for the expansion, we rallied the neighbors and community organizations and got legal counsel pro bono. We fought to have money supplied for the relocation and actually even the relocation of one city, Minor Lane Heights. We basically picked it up and moved it to a new area. And the airport fought us tooth and nail on this in the early years. They held closed door meetings. They would not give us the information. We went back to the legislature and we had the legislature pass a bill to force, to have the governor appoint someone from what we call the Airport Neighbors Alliance, which is an organization I helped to start of all the neighborhoods around the airport. 
So the governor Patton then appointed someone because of the legislation from the Airport Neighbors Alliance to sit on the Louisville-Jefferson County Air Board, which is what it was called, or the Regional Airport Authority. Now, since that time, there are no more closed-door meetings, at least on this issue, because the representative then can report back to the Airport Neighbors Alliance everything that's going on. So in terms of transparency, it was a major victory. But more importantly, over the uh, years, we were able to relocate the 10,000 folks into new homes and to make sure that there was federal government pouring in for that effort as well as state government. But it was a major effort and it was a grassroots effort by the people living around the airport. I'm so proud of the leaders in, the, in those communities, many of them now deceased. I think the other one was the uh, Michael Minger Campus Safety Bill. As some people recall, in 1999, there was a dormitory fire, an arson, that of, of a, of a uh, learning disabled student, Michael Minger, who uh, lived in the dormitory at Murray State University. There was a cover-up by the university of the fire so that they would not basically look good. Uh, they would look bad in terms of uh, campus safety. We were able, with Michael Minger's mother, Gail Minger, to basically transform how universities and colleges deal with crime on their campuses. So this Michael Minger Act then became law within one year, and it's now been a national model that Gail Minger has taken to other state legislatures and even the federal government. So that makes our campus safety a high priority in this state. So all crimes have to be posted on the internet, publicly exposed to everybody within 24 hours of the incident. Um, and in no one of a campus uh, authority, like a campus fire inspector or campus security officer can do the investigation of a crime on the campus because they have a conflict of interest. So we have outside investigators doing all the cr criminal investigations. So that was a major piece of legislation as well. And I think the, uh, the other thing that we really worked on through the years was tax reform. And I think we were making some headway until the Republicans controlled the legislature in 2016. I'm going to ask you not a, not a real happy question here, but about harm that uh, legislation has done. But before I do that, I, I was wanting to ask about the environment and legislation that has helped to improve the environment. Well, the, uh, the, the chief pioneer on all environmental legislation during my years in the legislature was Tom Fitzgerald and the Kentucky Resources Council. There are a number of environmental organizations in the state that uh, build coalitions and work together, but Tom Fitzgerald has really been the champion of the environment during his 30-some years in the legislature. And as some of you know, he just retired last year. But Tom is, it, it, he should be canonized as a saint. He is a, he's an amazing man who's very, very patient, but also very clear in what's right and wrong and knows his stuff. He has done all the research. He knows all the chemistry. He knows all the regulations backwards and forwards. He's a tremendous, tremendous lobbyist. He's one of the best. And, uh, and Tom is also a very centered man who's very passionate about what he's done through the years. But Tom has really forestalled a lot of disasters in this state. And if it weren't for Tom, our environment would be a lot worse than it is in terms of pollution by industry and especially the coal industry. Because I was the sponsor of the mountaintop removal uh, bill, the ban mountaintop removal for a number of years. And that bill, of course, never got through because of the interest of the coal uh, and the, how they pull the strings of their puppets in Frankfurt. But the 
if it weren't for Tom, we would have a lot worse in terms of uh, our waterways, in terms of our, our air, and also just in terms of monitoring different aspects of the environment that he has insisted that uh, that the state take up uh, the responsibility. Okay, well, let's look at legislative action that has caused harm to the citizens of Kentucky. Not a happy question, but what would you say? Well, during my years, we did some great things. One of them was the health care reform. Governor Burton Jones led the health care reform before there was an effort even by Hillary Clinton and before there was the Obamacare. And we were a model for the nation. And there was one big gap in that, and that is that associations would not have to follow the law. So for instance, if the Home Builders Association wanted to have their own insurance policy for their members, that insurance policy would not have to follow state regulation. Now, eventually what happened is the insurance companies and their lobbyists and their political action committees recognized this was a major win for Brereton Jones and the people of Kentucky, but it was gonna cost them billions of dollars. And so they basically retreated, they retrained, if you will, came back to Frankfurt with much gusto and were able step by step to dismantle the entire healthcare reform within five years. And it was a scandal to witness it. It really was. And until the Obamacare came along and remedied some of the horrible things that the Republicans and the Democrats did to dismantle them, we were in a bad state. We're in a better state now, but we're, we're, we have a lot of improvement to be done to move toward a single payer system. I think the other major reform that was positive was a public financing of gubernatorial races. And that took place in the early 90s. Governor Patton's second term, which was in 1995, was a publicly funded campaign. And so he and his opponent were able to raise, I think it was at the time, a quarter of a million dollars from private interests. And then after that, they could they agreed not to raise any more money. And there was then um, a pledge by the state to pay for additional funding for their campaigns. That did several things. One of the things it did was free them from shaking the money tree all the time. The second thing is it reduced the temptation that they would, they would become whores of special interests that would basically buy them and put them in office. And when the Republicans realized that this would undercut their base, they moved in quickly and dismantled that as well. And so what you, what you had then was the Republicans who wanted to tap into their wealthy donors and their corporate interests uh, said, look, let's make this a free-for-all. Let's don't, let's don't have public financing. And they, of course, they, the term they used was welfare for politicians. That was the the tagline they used to dismantle it. It's unfortunate, and we've tried to reform it again. I've put in several bills to actually make Supreme Court races publicly financed as well as legislative races publicly financed. But those uh, bills obviously either didn't get off the launching pad or were, were, uh, were shot out of space, so to speak. But this is a major issue, and with the Citizen United decision by the Supreme Court in recent years, we now really have a democracy that is at risk with the way political races are funded. I think the uh, the other damaging pieces of legislation that are happening right now and were beginning to happen when I was there is the tax reform that the Republicans are putting in. The Republicans typically follow what they call the uh, template, so to speak, by the corporations and their front organizations. And one of them is to dismantle what we 
would call progressive income tax systems. So progressive income tax systems means that the more money you make, the more you pay in taxes. And so poor people would pay a lot less in taxes than the multimillionaires. And that typically from mid-30s on was seen as a, a way that we have um, a system that is fair. What the Republicans know is that they want to protect their wealthy donors and their wealthy puppeteers. And so they will set up a system that guarantees that they actually pay less percentage-wise in their income than poor people and working people. And so that's the system that you see now being implemented in Frankfurt when they want to do away with the income tax and they want to broaden the sales tax. Well, people think, well, the sales tax is fair. Everybody pays the same. The sales tax is one of the most unjust taxes that a government can set up. And the reason for that is because a multimillionaire does not pay tax on every dollar that they have coming into their bank accounts. A poor person pays tax in a sales tax system like Tennessee's, pays tax on every dollar that comes into their bank. So for instance, if a person is making $500 a week, they may they may um, have to pay so much money just to live in groceries and in uh, utilities and in clothes and in other expenses just for daily living. And in Tennessee, that's the case. You have to pay a sales tax on all those things. In Kentucky now, they want to broaden it and make it mirror Tennessee. And Tennessee has no income tax. Kentucky has a modest income tax that has been flattened by the Republicans. So uh, it's a very, very harmful legislation that they're pushing through. The other thing to note is that it's also a very unstable form of taxation. The best forms of taxation are when you have a blend of different ways to tax people. So as the economy shifts and the, uh, the variations of the marketplace shift, it's important that you have adjustments made so certain taxes will benefit in a down economy, other taxes will be stable in a down economy, and some taxes will be reduced in a down economy. And the vice versa would be true. So it's always that the wise taxation philosophy is you put a blend of taxes. So you have income tax, sales tax, property tax, different types of taxes so that no one form of tax is relied on. Uh, that's very dangerous for any government. So that we're, in a, we're in a really difficult time in the state. We have an influx of money from Biden money, but that money is temporary. And we better use it wisely because we have a tax system that all the experts and over 20 professional studies have said is an unjust, inadequate, and outdated tax system. And the injustice is being made worse by the current Republicans in Frankfurt. Okay, let's, let's change the directions a little bit here, Jim. So up sure. until the 1990s, the Republican Party here in Kentucky, and the nation as well, was the party of small government, a staunch supporter of capitalism and corporate power, protector of the status quo. Democrats generally supported government regulation, government intervention for the purpose of helping those struggling to make ends meet. Even though those differences existed before the 1990s, Republicans and Democrats Immigrants often found common ground, sometimes co-sponsoring bills. But things have changed. Both here in Frankfurt and Washington, D.C., now the Democrats, the Democratic Party, the Republican Party, look very tribal. Civility and cooperation is hard to find these days. What has happened that has caused the political landscape to become so divided? Well, many things have happened. Uh, I think something that's never mentioned too much was the uh, federal law that you had to give equal time to different opinions on public airways. And when that was done away with about 30 years ago or so, 
Then you had the rise of these vocal minorities who basically filled up the airwaves. And you think back of people like Rush Limbaugh, who actually did some very demonic things during his tenure uh, on his show. But then he basically spawned a number of other extreme right-wing voices that do nothing but divide and frighten people. And that sets us, that, that then spread out with all the, the rise of social media that began about 20 years ago. So when you look back at the, at the way people learn about government and about public policy. What we have is people who are drawn to these right-wing extremists and find that they are channels for their individual rages. The other thing that's happened is demographically, if you look at what's happened demographically in the last 20 years, 30 years, you see a real shift in the number of minorities, non-white folks. So right now, for children 16 and under, whites are no longer the majority. So that tells you in the next 20 years, we will have nationally our population the whites will be a minority. Now, the enraged white power folks know this is happening. They know that power is slipping from their hands. They know that people of color, uh, whether they be black or uh, of Asian descent or native descent or uh, Latin descent, these folks are now collectively gonna move into powerful positions. And you see that happening right here in our city. And you see that happening um, little by little in our state, although, you know, like Mark Twain, you want to be in Kentucky when the world ends because everything here happens 20 years late. We're, uh, you know, but we will see this in Kentucky. And and I think when you combine the social media explosion, you see the fear among whites, then what happens is we become tribal. And when you become tribal, you create divisions instead of community. And so we fail to listen to one another. We fail to try to use reason and science and research to, to make sound public policy. And in Instead, we storm uh, the state capital or the federal capital in anger that the world is not the way we want it. And it, it's a tragic situation in Kentucky. We've seen the, the demonstrations down there hanging the governor and effigy and so forth. Uh, but it's also a tragic situation, as we know, nationally because of January 6th. So in terms of what happened on the political landscape, the Democrats really are divided among themselves. And you see that in Washington and you see that in Frankfurt. There is a progressive voice within the Democratic Party that is becoming stronger and stronger and stronger. But you still have Democrats who want to go go along to get along. And this dates back to Jimmy Carter. When Jimmy Carter started the deregulation process, it was accelerated under Reagan. And then Clinton came in and did the same thing. The deregulation of different industries and especially the financial industry uh, to favor the corporations. And by the way, there's a great book on by Sarah Chase, the uh, former NPR reporter, who uh, book is called On Corruption in America. And she outlines this pretty, pretty thoroughly to show the history of how the Democrats have gone along, the majority of Democrats have gone along with the same deregulation and free market philosophy that the Republicans push with diesel fuel. They really, they accelerated, but but the Democrats have gone along as well. And Obama wasn't much better, quite frankly. His financial institution reform was was weak at best. And if you think I'm speaking uh, unilaterally, I think you need to listen to some other people like Elizabeth Warren and so forth who would tell you that we still are controlled by the major financial institutions in this nation who keep a tabs on everything and set us up basically for another recession uh, down the road. So yeah, it's it's a difficult situation right now. The moneyed interests now are controlling everything. You know, we mentioned earlier the uh, Citizens United decision, a very tragic decision for democracy by the Supreme Court.
And what that basically means is anybody can hide their donations to political candidates and basically buy a politician, put the politician in office and pull the strings of that politician. It's no longer that that politician is no longer a representative of the people. That politician is a whore to the so yeah, you talk about the Supreme Court uh, Citizens United decision that occurred in 2010. Talk about the influence of corporate power on elections here in Kentucky. Is that influence of corporate money expanding into Kentucky, is that why the Republicans now hold such a supermajority in Frankfurt? It is. It is. That's in part. But they also, the Republicans are crafty and they appear not to have consciences. So they will run a campaign full of lies. And by the way, Democrats aren't always exempt from that doing that, but they will distort reality so bad and stir up so much fear and division that people rush to support them. And of course, the, you know, the patron saint of that is Donald Trump. But uh, but it, it, it happens at a local level, too. And they'll take wedge issues, as we call them, like gays or transgenders or abortion, or now it's the critical race theory, whatever, whatever little wedge issue they can they can use. And they will uh, frighten people enough to say, you better vote for me because the other person is is. The, the devil incarnate. And and then they have the money to get that message out. And the money comes from the corporate interest. A good example of that right now is we have a bill in legislature that Morgan McGarvey and Lisa Wilner, Senator Morgan McGarvey, Representative Lisa Wilner, who's my successor, they've introduced a bill that would completely lift the statute of limitation on civil suits for child sexual abuse. Well, the reason that's important is because most victims of child sexual abuse don't realize the impact of that on their lives until maybe they're in their 50s or older. And, and so they can't come back and file suit in Kentucky. Other states or about 30 some states have no statute of limitation on these civil suits. But in Kentucky, we do. So a, a former constituent of mine is a victim of the Boy Scout a sex abuse scandal. And that money is being allocated in a, uh, a lawsuit based on whether or not there's a statute of limitation in the state. So since Kentucky does, uh, has only a 10-year statute of limitation, that uh, he's going to get a fraction of what some of the other Boy Scout victims in the nation are going to get. So Lisa and Morgan were very, very bold in uh, proposing this legislation which came out of the committee without opposition in the Senate. And then it sat on the agenda, orders of the day in the Senate for over a week. Then this past week, we found out that the insurance lobbyists, those who insure organizations from such lawsuits, the insurance lobbyists went to evidently the leaders in the Senate and said, pull that bill off the orders of the day. There's no vote on that. Send it back to committee. An attempt, obviously, to kill it. Now, this is cruel, but it also shows how corrupt the system is. Why would you listen to an insurance lobbyist over a victim of child sexual abuse who's suffering so severely in their life? That is inhumane. But yet that is what we're, that's, that's what we're about right now in Frankfurt. Another example of this is the payday lending operation in this state. There are more payday lenders in Kentucky than there are McDonald's. And yet they charge sometimes in the three figures of interest for poor people to get a temporary loan. Other states put a cap on this interest, but not in Kentucky. And we, when Darrell Owens, the late representative Darrell Owens, introduced legislation to cap this, lo and behold, the previous governor Bashir held a fundraiser and some of the major contributors were the people in the payday lending industry. That bill didn't get off the ground. And the Democrat leadership at the time was just as corrupt in their decision on that as was 
Governor Bashir, the first Governor Bashir. So now let me just say, when I make a statement like that about Governor Bashir, the previous leadership in the House, that's not to condemn these people. That I don't want to know what their judgment is. But I will tell you the impact is that the payday lending industry basically has free reign in this state. So if th this is the kind of system we have. It's not representative democracy. It's representative. It's a representative plutocracy. So we have representatives that are bought and paid for by the rich and the corporations put into office and then do the bidding of these organizations and these corporations. Okay. So from our perspective, it looks like the Republican Party here in Kentucky is now moving much further to the right. Republicans, yes. Matt Walker, Joe Fisher, Max Wise, uh, they've introduced bills HB 14, HB 18, SB 138, and HB 487. As the University of Louisville Law Professor Cedric Powell explains, on our program, Solutions to Violence, these bills are designed to impede the teaching of African American and Native American history in our public schools, parochial schools as well, colleges and universities as well. These bills are also designed to impede the teaching of the history of the LBGDQ and women's rights movement as well. Historians like Murray State University Professor Barry Craig, Brian Clarity, and philosophers like University of Kentucky Professor Arnold Farr see this as censorship. If state government is dictating what public school teachers and universities professors can teach, does the classroom intervention on the part of state government demonstrate a defense conservative turn to the right? Why so? Absolutely. And uh, this is... Uh... This is amazing. I think when you when you tell teachers, legislators tell teachers what they're going to teach, it is a form of censorship. We have to respect the profession of teaching. We have public institutions that we pay for that hire great professors to train and to form teachers for our public school system. We then put those teachers into the classroom and we trust that the policymakers on the on the state school board, the local school boards, the administration of each school, that those people will guide those teachers and support them in their efforts to form our young people. But when a legislator comes in and says, this is what you're going to teach and this is what you're going to teach, we have a serious problem. We wouldn't do this to a brain surgeon who's educated in our medical schools uh, and go and you know, have a criteria of what they're going to do in, in the operating room. We wouldn't do that to, uh, to people that are uh, in other professions that we trust are regulated by the state, but are not micromanaged by the state. This is basically technique that the Republican Party uses. It's, it's creating a wedge issue to frighten people, to get them shook up so that they're now infiltrating this whole agenda. The Republican right-wing extremists is now infiltrating the local school boards. And, and, and behind this, the whole fear behind this is they're coming for you. And that is the whites who have been in control and had a routine and settled in their in their uh, way of living are now being scared that they're coming for you. The blacks are coming for you. The immigrants are coming for you. The Muslims are coming for you. The gays are dominating our classrooms and forming our kids. You know, this is crazy paranoia. But yet it works for the Republicans. It works for them and for some Democrats. And so what we have to do is to trust the professionals to be the people that oversee their professions in communication with those they serve. And in this case, what we did in 1990 with the uh, school reform, CARA, Kentucky Education Reform Act of 1990, we set up the school-based decision-making committees and we listened to the parents. We listened to, we even had students on there. We listened to the students. We listened to the administrators. Everyone worked together for the common good of the children. 
uh, that's what we need to get back to. We don't need to be having our school systems curriculum dictated by legislators. Well, you know, that's our next question, Jim. That's uh, Senate Bill 1, sponsored by Republicans. That was Chickle, Wilson, Alvarado, Girdler, Givens, Meredith, Mills, Fair. West and Wise, that bill's going to diminish what is called the site-based decision-making councils. And that was that was set some time ago when Jim and I were teaching. Uh, it places the power in the district, school, the superintendents. It's designed to keep the parents from having a voice in the local public schools and uh, removing that SBDM council from uh, from any kind of authority and, and putting it in only the superintendent's uh, hands. So, for example, SBDM councils are given the authority to, to reject or accept a new principal's Appointment. That now is set only by the superintendent, which doesn't necessarily deal with the issues or the concerns or the needs of that particular school. So some people believe that removing the authority from the SBDM councils and placing that power in the hands of the superintendent gives the Republicans uh, and lawmakers control, as you said, over local public school districts. That, you say, is the intent right? Yes. Well, I think there's a larger agenda here the Republicans have. And the larger agenda is basically to defund public schools. And yes. if they can consolidate power in, say, the administrator, rather than listening to the people, the people will be alienated from their school system. And the more that you get maybe a misguided superintendent or misguided leader in the local school system, the more a threat that could be to the people. And as we know, what the Republicans want to do is to set up a private school system for profit in many cases. And uh, this is another way that corporations move into another aspect of what we would call our community-designed services. So uh, our public school system, as we all know, goes back to the early uh, 19th century. And the idea was basically it's socialism for education. People don't want to call it that, but you know we have socialism in this country. It's called the public transportation system, our highway system, our voting system, and that the education system is as well a collective effort. And uh, enlightened communities even have uh, publicly owned utilities. But in this case, the Republicans see this as an opportunity. The corporations, I should say, see this as an opportunity for money making. So you can set up a charter school, a for-profit charter school, and you can make a lot of money. And and what we're doing is we is we erode what, what I termed earlier CARA, Education Reform Act of 1990, which is this is another erosion of that uh, legislation. We're going back to a more primitive way of public education, which can alienate parents from the administration. And the more alienated they are, guess what they're going to do? They're going to be upset. And well, let's get together. We'll just start our own school because we have public money now for charter schools. And so you bypass the school system. The charter school drains the kids that are more high functioning and leaves poor kids who have troubled backgrounds and troubled homes left in the public school system for the struggling teachers to try to manage and educate. So it's it's a, a large narrative agenda that the Republicans have, and they've been pushing this for years. Unfortunately, it's it's gaining traction right now. And that public money for schools ends up going to private schools, yes, correct? That's right, that's right. And that the, the Catholics... Uh, are pushing this uh, the bill that they passed last time that got into a little legal trouble but it's a, a way it's a tax credit bill to fund public private schools which is a scandal i mean the catholic leadership i think is is dead wrong on this issue the bishops are dead wrong on this issue they're not looking out for the common good which is a basic teaching of catholic social doc doctrine you look out for the common good and the common good here says you don't 
take money from a state treasury that's supposed to go to public education and put that in your private faith-based school. That's immoral. So, Chuck, there are signs of reactionary movement within the Republican Party on the national level as well. An article published by Gale International entitled, quote, The Trump Presidency and the Mainstreaming of Far-Right Politics, end quote, and penned by Aluren Modon and Anatole Vaughn, explains that the right-wing demonstrations, sometimes violent, like the one that occurred in August 17, 2017, which took place in Charlotte, North Carolina, and ended in the murder of the anti-fascist Heather Heyer, did occur during the Trump administration. Modon and Vaughn explained that the Charlotte demonstration was and was attended by participants from the neo-Nazi party and other extreme right-wing activist organizations, organizations that had been marginalized, like the Proud Boys, and a new group, the alt-right, gained prominence under the Trump administration. The right-wing insurrection that took place January 6, 2022, an attack on the National Capitol building, was an attempt to overturn a certified presidential election. Why are these far-right organizations that had been marginalized since the end of World War II now becoming mainstream within the Republican Party? And how concerned should we be? Well, Jim, that's a that's a much broader question than I think uh, you may realize. Let, let, me, let me take us back and look at what's happening in the American culture right now. And I, I will say this was pre-Ukraine because I'm not sure what the Ukrainian war will do in terms of uniting our country. It looks like right now there is some sense that we are all supporting the Ukrainians, which can be a rallying point. And, and even though it's tragedy what's going on there, it can actually be good to dampen some of the divisions within this nation. But I think when you, when you talk about the Proud Boys and these extreme alt-right groups and so forth, much of that goes back to what I mentioned before about the cultural and demographic shift that's going on in our country. As you know, more and more people have moved to urban areas in the last 50 years. Uh, I think right now in the world, 70% of the population lives in urban areas, leaving many in this country, many rural areas basically hollowed out and abandoned. So you could take the ride, you could take a ride from Louisville to French Lake, which my wife and I did last weekend to visit some friends. The little towns along U.S. Highway 150, you can see what's happened to rural America. These little towns are dead and they've just been, and basically they are ghost towns. The buildings are still there in many of them but they're abandoned and falling down. That's the story of rural America. And when you see that many people fleeing rural America or abandoning it, and you see more and more people coming to the urban area, what happens is rural America, those that left are left, get really frightened. And you see that uh, it's almost like mirrored in Frankfurt in the legislature. Those legislators from the rural areas that have suffered so much hardship I'm thinking especially Eastern Kentucky with the downturn in coal, the raping of their land by the uh, loggers and the strip miners, the streams that are that are polluted, the, the towns that are just barely hanging on, the, the county governments that have deficit budgets because the property taxes are so, so bad, because the property values have been diminished. When you see all that, people get frightened and they're isolated in the rural area. They're not open uh, to uh, different types of people. How many people in Harlan County know LGBT? person? How many of them know a black person? How many of them know a Jew? And so they, they become isolated and then they have a, their understanding of the narrative of life becomes very, very narrow and it's rooted in fear if you dare threaten it. 
their 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 philosophy of life and their their values. People who move to urban areas, these children of these people that are in the rural areas, move to Louisville or Lexington. They're going to be open to new ideas, and hopefully, they will be exposed to different ways of thinking and living. And hopefully, they will develop compassion for differences. Not always. Sometimes they come and they take their rural prejudices with them and and become rigid in an urban area too. But at least there's a, there's an attempt to do that. So I think if you put that as the backdrop,、uh, what you see is something.、Uh, the stage is set for someone like Trump to come in, a demagogue like Trump to come in, and、uh, and you see it in our state with McConnell. You see it with、uh, Rand Paul and Massey, and in a more tempered way, the other Republican congressmen. But but these people all buy into this fear mentality, and they. That they stir up the fear. You know, when Quintez Brown was released on bail by the by the group that put up his bail money, you heard such divisive response by Mitch McConnell on the Senate floor, calling him、uh, calling、uh, out the the people who bailed him out as、uh, left wing extremists, bailing out their comrade. That was the term he used. Now, this this type of language is not healing for our state. And the more we, I think, as as enlightened people, resist that kind of divisive language and The more we can attempt to actually build some bridges and listen to each other, which I hope can happen over time. Your op-ed in the Courier Journal forum that was February 27th, you stated this: the bail project helps change lives, but Kentucky HB 313 endangers it. You argued that if a person with means is accused of a crime and arrested, that person will have the cash needed to bail themselves out of jail and will not have to stay in jail until their trial. Date. Person arrested from a working class community has to remain in jail until their trial because they don't have enough cash to to make bail. The Bail Project then is a, a an organization that that helps those who have been arrested but can't make their bail. But、uh, HB 313 is a bill filed by Republican legislators and it it diminishes the the ability of the Bail Project to help working class citizens with、uh, who have been arrested can't make bail and then can't get a pretrial release. Okay, first. First of all, explain why it's unfair to、uh, working-class citizens. Well, the bail system as we have it in Kentucky is is unfair to poor people because poor people don't have the resources to post the bail. They can't do it, and so their their only option is to stay in the jail until their trial, which could be weeks or months, and sometimes even longer than that. And in our own city, we have obviously dysfunctional jail. It's a jail where we've had six deaths, mysterious in some circumstances. Yes, and we have it's evidently understaffed, and I think there's some real question as to the philosophy behind running this jail. Is the jail intended as a temporary, secure housing facility for people who are presumed innocent to await their trial if they can't post bail, or is it a system where you lock them up, get them off the streets, and begin punishing them even before a trial has determined they're guilty of anything? And so, what what the the bail project does is basically it's a group of folks. That collect their funds, have those funds available for a poor person to help them pay the bail to get out, and then, but more importantly, they have wraparound services for those folks. So if they have a need for、uh, an evaluation for substance abuse or for mental illness, that's provided. If they have need to, to for food or housing or 
whatever, support for the family, bail project helps with that. So it's it's a, a compassionate way to, to look at a, a non-just system and to deal with an unjust system. Now, the reactionary folks in Frankfurt want to put limitations on this. Now, you wouldn't put limitations on a wealthy person bailing themselves out, but they want to put limitations on a poor person getting bailed out. Um, so their, their obvious prejudice is evident in their rhetoric. So you've explained to us now why it's justified, but isn't it? Well, there's some pushback now that the organization helps put criminals back on the street. I mean, we've had examples of uh, people who have been taken back on the street and who have actually killed someone. And that seems a little seems a little unjust to the, the general public. How do you respond well, to that? And that is tragic. But the, the question is to ask in situations like that is, if they're going to be put back on the street, what services are they going to be offered? Because we know about 60% of the people right now that are incarcerated in this nation have either mental illness or they have substance abuse issues. And most of the time, those issues are not being treated. So if if someone is mentally ill, say they have bipolar uh, depression, they're schizophrenic, uh, they're, they're schizoid, or maybe they're addicted to... Uh, to drugs or alcohol, these people, if you bail them out and just there's no other action, they, they the, the community is at risk because those people could act irrationally and irresponsibly very quickly. And and so it's very important that if we're going to keep the current system, which is a bad system to begin with, but if you're going to keep it, that you have some guardrails on the organizations that provide the money to bail these folks out. By guardrails, I mean that those organizations are equipped to give the wraparound services to these people while they're awaiting trial. So yeah, there there should be pushback. If there's no responsible way for people to be on the on the street after getting bailed out without any services to, to help support them. So that's the issue. To just say we do away with uh, something like the bail project, that's knee jerk. It's not nuanced and uh, basically it's unjust. So you're saying that uh, an ankle bracelet is not really enough to uh, to protect the, uh, the public? Well, <laughs> that, you know, it, no, it's not. What's needed, and this is the tragedy of our mental health system, in our addiction uh, services system in this nation, what we need are highly trained professionals that can work with a system that is easily accessible to everybody. And we don't have that today. We have seven county services is overloaded. Uh, you go, to, you try to get a psychiatrist in this town, you might wait wait months to get a psychiatrist for meds in this town. I mean, it is a real tragedy, a real tragedy. You wouldn't do this in any major city if it had to do with cancer treatment or, or heart disease. But yet for mental illness and addictions, this is the tragedy that we're dealing with, a system that is way overloaded, understaffed, and the staff is often undertrained. Okay, a little further on politics. Because Republicans hold a, a supermajority, as you've already mentioned, in both the House and the, the Senate, they were in charge of redrawing political bounds. This redistricting was supposed to be based on the 2020 U.S. Census data. However, Republicans combined Mary Lou Marsden's district, D34, and, and uh, Josie Raymond's district, D34. 31. They also combined Mackenzie Cantrell's district, D38, with Lisa Wilner's district, D35. That's your old district. They also combined Pam Stevenson's district, D34, with Attica Scott's district, D41. Did the Republicans follow a U.S. Census guideline, or did they gerrymander some districts for the purpose of getting Republicans reelected and eliminated some Democrats? What do you think? Well, and then third, uh, another question you might ask is, uh, did they follow the guidelines on minority representation? Mm. Uh, 
The answer to that is no. But I have supported the lawsuit that uh, being filed. It's in, has been filed now to challenge the redistricting, not only of congressional races, of the uh, state legislative districts as well. What bill is that? It, it's not a bill. It's, it's, it's a suit, a lawsuit against ah. the Republicans uh, to challenge this. But uh, let's go back a minute. I think it's important to recognize that the way redistricting has been done uh, for years and years and years is not right. When the legislative leaders, typically about two or three people in the House and the Senate, uh, sit down and redraw all the lines. They're doing it for political reasons. It's as blunt as that can be. It's for political advantage for the dominant party. And that was definitely true of the Democrats uh, yes. all the years I was in there because I went through the census correction in 90, 2000, and then uh, 2010. And every time it was done behind closed doors by a, a small power elite and then uh, basically unable to be amended on the House floor in committee. So it was ramrodded through. In 2010, or 2000, and also again in 2010, uh, prior to those those uh, systems uh, being set up, I proposed legislation that would model other states to set up an independent commission to redraw the lines. An independent commission then sits down and objectively looks at all the data and says, we're going to make all these districts follow all the federal guidelines, but they're also going to make sure that it's not politically advantageous to one party over another. Uh, that then, the commission then proposes that to the legislature in, in those states. The legislature does not amend it, they pass it, and they live with it, okay? And so what's happened in, in Frankfurt is, that, of course, our legislation didn't get off the ground. But prior to this census, uh, I met with the League of Women Voters, and they wanted to have public forums throughout the state, and I really commend them for that. But I said, look at the commission idea. California is an example of that. Look at that idea. That's what needs to be promoted. And they took that and ran with it. Of course, the Republican leadership wouldn't even, they didn't even consider it, because they, they knew they had all the power, and they were going to basically due to the Democrats, what the Democrats had done with it to them for a previous hundred years. So let the games begin. They, they, they just they just did it their way. And the lawsuit, and uh, 10 years ago, as I recall, the lawsuit uh, did force the Democrats to redraw some lines because there was a lawsuit that time too. It's in reverse now that the Republicans uh, are in charge. The Democrats file the lawsuit. So we'll see what, what happens in court. But the system is corrupt. Uh, it's an ugly process. It needs to be reformed. And, you know, perhaps with some enlightened legislators, down the road, we'll, we'll have a system that's comparable to many other states and sets up an independent commission for redistricting. Okay, Jim, thanks for uh, that mentioning the League of Women Voters and the Democrats uh, and the Republicans both having a little hand in the redistricting to their advantage. I think that's important for everybody to understand. Uh, passing voter registration laws and, and voter restrictions that impede voting, people of color in states, across the country, law as, re as restrictive as the Democrats claim? Yes. You're talking about nationally, these states that are uh, putting these uh, Jim Crow voting restrictions on? Absolutely, yes. Yeah, it's, it's corrupt. It's, uh, you know, it's a way to, uh, instead of opening up the process and making it easy and accessible for everyone to vote, they put these restrictions on. And basically, the restrictions will ensure that the extremists and the Republican Party uh, show up to the polls but make it difficult for people of color, people who are of lower income and have to work long hours in low paying jobs to survive, to get them to the polls. Uh, it's very difficult to begin with. Uh, and then you put more restrictions on and some stupid restriction, like you can't even give somebody a glass of water standing in the Georgia heat waiting to vote. I mean, it, it's immoral. It is a new Jim Crow era uh, that, we're, that we're living in. And again, it goes back to the, uh, the issue that we talked about earlier. The white people are running scared and you 
you see that in the more conservative states uh, where the white people still cling to power, but they're fearful that the blacks will move in. And Georgia is a perfect example of that, where, uh, you know, you have a black a U.S. senator uh, and you have a strong candidate now in Stacey Abrams running for governor of that state. So uh, we have to recognize that demographics are changing and the reaction by white conservatives is one that will expose their hate, their injustice and their primitive ideas about about the dignity of all human beings. So eventually, there is the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act, H.R. 4. That would eliminate some of the voting restrictions passed by Republicans. But yes. the U.S. Senate declined to pass H.R. 4. What's your position on John Lewis Voting Rights Act? Is it possible that Congress could pass such an act some point down the line? Well, the hope is that we that we will see that bill pass at some point. Uh, it's unfortunate that uh, the Democrats were divided on that and did not uh, did not get it passed. But what it does, it basically supersedes the state legislation uh, that restricts voting access. And so it, it's a new voting rights bill, similar to what we had in the early 60s, mid-60s. And that's necessary right now, because you cannot, for especially for federal elections, you cannot have reactionary minority groups running and controlling the election process in states. And so uh, we need to have a more enlightened view uh, in, in our democracy that everyone, everyone should be encouraged to vote and uh, let the majority run the country, run the state, run the local school board, run the city, whatever. But when you try to manipulate things to, uh, as you see, your your dominance uh, demographically in decline, and you try to manipulate a system to stay in power, that's corruption. That's corruption, and it's immoral. So we need to have strong federal guidelines to prohibit that kind of corruption. Then let's look at uh, a book that you've authored, The Unfinished Man. The book is about child abuse and molestation of young boys conducted by Catholic priests. Your book is fiction, but Unfortunately, it's true life. The scandals rocked the Catholic Church during the tenure of Pope Benedicto XVI and the early part of the Pope Francis tenure. Uh, has the Catholic Church cleaned up its act in, in regards to those child abuse scandals, or is there still a problem? What's the answer? Yeah, there, there is still a problem in certain areas. Uh, I will say, as far as institutions, as far as I can piece together a large picture, the Catholic Church has done a pretty remarkable job of monitoring itself with new guidelines. Uh, in 2003, there was uh, a, a, a or 2002, there was a meeting in Dallas of all the U.S. bishops, and some major guidelines were developed then. And then in subsequent years, that's called the Dallas Charter. In subsequent years, there were attempts to try to uh, iron out some of the details of that charter. And I think uh, they've done a pretty good job. Now, I'm not saying that, uh, you know, that sin is always going to fill the Catholic Church. You know, the devil loves the Catholic Church as, as, a, as a place where, where the good old devil can tempt. Uh, but, uh, so there, you're going to get sick people drawn to the priesthood. You're going to get people that are sexually immature drawn to the priesthood, or to the, you know, even teaching Catholic schools or, you know, in, in the convents and so forth. That's human life. But you have to have guidelines, and you have to have authority people who step in and say, we're not going to cover up anything. And that the primary concern is the victim, not the preservation of the church's reputation and certainly not the preservation of the status of one of its clergy. So that's that's really improved. And you see Pope Francis really working hard to make sure these reforms are implemented. So I have to compliment. I think uh, Bishop Kurtz, Archbishop Kurtz has done a pretty good job too. Not perfect on this area. And he and I disagree on many issues. But uh, but in this area, I think he's done a pretty decent job of trying to be quick uh, when there's a problem uh, and act act very prudently to remove a clergyman uh, and, uh, and, and to follow up with 
with, with, with the actions that are necessary, responsible actions that are necessary to make sure things are remedied. It's still not perfect, and we're still going to have some problems. But as long as we have good uh, spiritual leaders who are not afraid to protect children over protecting the reputation of the church or its clergy, I think we're going to be in good hands. Would, would some solution be like allowing women to be priests or allowing priests marry? Well, I don't. I think the studies, psychological studies, have shown that these are separate issues. Certainly, from my point of view, we have a very primitive understanding of what the clergy, <laughs> who, who should belong to the clergy. We need to open that up. I think the Holy Spirit's guiding us to call a lot of different people to be in leadership roles as ordained ministers, and that would include women and include married men and women. So those are, to me, the Holy Spirit couldn't be more clear in the message she's giving to the church leaders. The church leaders don't seem to be able to listen. But Jim, we've discussed a number of issues today that are controversial and reactionary, but there's some positive signs out there. What, what gives you hope? Oh, there's so many things that give me hope. And I think we have to be people of hope. That's what carries the people of Ukraine right now is hope. That is what's mobilizing them. And I think they are models for us in this nation. We need to be hopeful about reforming the election system, not only access to voting, but also the way elections are run and who pays for them. We need to be hopeful about our environment because we don't we only have one environment. And we need to recognize that if you start to put limits and controls on corporations and on capitalism, which is absolutely necessary role of government, that it's going to be for the common good. We don't want to close out corporations. That's not the intent of the government is to put proper guidelines so that the environment is protected, workers are protected, the consumers are protected, and the operations pay their, pay their fair share of taxes. These are all for the common good. And the more we have leaders who are looking after the common good instead of their own selfish, personal, political agenda, the more that our nation and our communities will thrive. You know, human beings are, by nature, resilient. And human beings, by nature, have an innate goodness. So it's, it's important for us to recognize that and to tap that innate goodness and that innate resilience. And I mean, I'm just so inspired by the people of nations around the Ukraine who are welcoming these refugees. You know, the Polish family who says, you know, we can take in eight people. We have three bedrooms or whatever. Come, come be with us. We will take you home. We will feed you. We will house you. We will take care of you during this crisis in your life. That type of goodness we all have within us. We saw it in reaction to the Western Kentucky tornadoes. We see it, you know, when, when there's another crisis in our community of a personal nature. So people can rally. We are good people, but we need to tap that goodness instead of our fears. Fear is what will destroy us, and we can't be afraid. Ladies and gentlemen, we are out of time. Former Kentucky State legislator and author of the book, Unfinished Man, has been our guest today, Jim Wayne. We want to thank you, Jim. It's been a pleasure for us to have you join us today with our Solutions to Violence. Sure. I'm honored to be with you, and I, I wish you all well. So our, our Solutions to Violence program airs on Mondays at 5 p.m., Tuesdays at 8 a.m., and Wednesdays at 6 a.m. Our interview featuring Jim Wayne airs again March 15th and 16th. To listen live stream, visit us at forwardradio.org and click on Listen Live Now. The Solutions to Violence program featuring Jim Wayne will be placed at WMP Archives March 16, 2022. To visit our archives, go to Forward Radio website at forwardradio.org. Choose Program Archives, then Solutions to Violence, the program that features Jim Wayne. For more information and a schedule of programming that will surprise, delight you, maybe even challenge you, visit us at forwardradio.org. I'm Jim Johnson. Thanks for listening.